This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. One chilly evening in March 1953, Beresford Brown was doing some maintenance work in the kitchen of the apartment building where he lived with his wife. The unit was located at 10 Rillington Place in the grimy, impoverished West London working-class suburb of Notting Hill. It was not hygienic living quarters by any means. The building itself was typical of many at the time, a shabby three-story Victorian brick terrace. When it was built, it was intended to be a single-family home, but by the mid-1950s, these homes were in such a state of disrepair that the residential areas were reduced to little more than slums. The buildings had long been repurposed as low-income accommodation, with one unit for rent on each floor. None of the apartments had bathrooms, so the tenants shared an outhouse in the backyard. Despite living on the top floor, the Browns had recently been granted use of the kitchen in the ground floor unit by their landlord. The former tenant had just moved out, so the apartment was empty. Beresford decided to install some brackets on one of the kitchen walls to hold a wireless radio. As he was installing the brackets, he noticed that part of the wall was not as solid, not like the rest. Curious, he pulled away the brittle wallpaper, which revealed a secret alcove of sorts. Beresford wondered if there was anything inside. Maybe there was some useful storage space he could use. Well, he discovered it had been used for storage all right, but he didn't find kitchenware or old furniture from tenants long gone. As soon as he looked inside, Beresford Brown shot backwards in horror. The glow of his flashlight lit up the remains of a woman, partially dressed, and hunched over. Beresford contacted the police, who soon discovered two more bodies hidden in the space. They were both women, and both were wrapped in blankets. It was estimated that the bodies had been there for at least a month. The previous tenant, a man named John Christie, had just moved out. It was difficult not to notice that the timing of his disappearance was a bit convenient. But no one knew where he had gone. As authorities would soon discover, the events at 10 Rillington Place were truly the stuff of nightmares, and would go on to become one of Britain's most infamous cases. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. John Reginald Halliday Christie was born in April 1899 in the Yorkshire village of North Alrum. One of six children, his home life was not the most nurturing. Known as Reg to his family, his father was a strict disciplinarian, while his mother completely spoiled him. When Christie was still a child, he attended the viewing of the body of his 75-year-old grandfather. 
Instead of being repulsed or frightened, he was absolutely fascinated. As a youngster, John Christie didn't have many friends and was said to be a loner. He may not have been popular amongst his peers, but he was smart. He won a scholarship to secondary school, where he demonstrated an aptitude for mathematics and was a proud member of the Boy Scouts. In 1913, 14-year-old Christie left school and went to work as an assistant film projectionist. As he got older, he struggled to have healthy relationships with women, apparently because of the bullying he often received about his inability to perform in the bedroom. Instead, he eventually turned to hiring sex workers, with whom he felt far more comfortable. Toward the end of 1916, Christie enlisted in the British Army, going on to serve in France. He was hospitalized in June 1918, after being injured in a gas attack. Eighteen months later, he left the army on disability. John Christie later claimed the injuries he sustained during the war left his vision and his ability to speak significantly affected. Doctors, however, generally believed this was a result of psychosomatic symptoms. In May 1920, the 21-year-old married his girlfriend, Ethel Simpson. Unfortunately, there wasn't much of a honeymoon period for the couple. Of course, that could have something to do with John Christie's ongoing performance issues and his continued, frequent visits with prostitutes. Around the same time, he started to find himself in trouble with the law, landing behind bars on and off throughout the next few years. In 1921, Christie was found guilty of stealing money orders while working as a postman. The 23-year-old was convicted of violent conduct and obtaining funds under false pretenses. Not surprisingly, this was not the picture of wedded bliss Ethel had hoped for. The couple separated, and John Christie decided to move over 200 miles away to London. A couple of years later, in late 1923, Christie decided to give the military another go and enlisted in the British Royal Air Force. But the recruit could not stay out of trouble. The following year, he served more prison time for larceny convictions. During the late 1920s, he drifted from job to job, often taking on work as a truck driver. It was around this time that he and the woman he was seeing moved in together. This, however, seemed to have little impact on his bad behavior, which had started to escalate. In May 1929, he struck his female companion over the head with a bat and was charged with grievous bodily harm. Christie was sent back to prison for six months. His interaction with the criminal justice system continued when he spent more time behind bars a few years later for vehicle theft. By early 1934, however, things were beginning to look up. When Christie was released from prison, he and his wife Ethel reunited. A few years later, the couple decided to make a fresh start and moved into an apartment at 10 Rillington Place in the district of Notting Hill. For the next three years, John Christie worked at a movie theater in the nearby suburb of Hammersmith. But with the start of World War II, he decided to join the War Reserve Police as a special constable. It seemed luck was on his side, because incredibly, no one checked his criminal history. If they had, he would not have made it through the recruitment process. While working for the Reserve Police, 
40-year-old Christy began having an affair with a married woman whose husband was overseas serving in the war. The relationship ended abruptly in 1943 when the woman's husband returned, found out about the affair, and physically assaulted Christy. The only reason he was able to maintain his extramarital activities was because Ethel was often away visiting her family. It was during one of these trips away that Christy headed out to find some company. It was August 24th, 1943, and it was a warm evening. He eventually found himself chatting to a 21-year-old woman named Ruth Furst. Born in Austria, Ruth had come to London to work as a student nurse. To help make ends meet, she would occasionally engage in sex work. So when Christie extended an invitation back to his place, she accepted. She had no time to dress afterwards before John Christie strangled her to death using a piece of rope. He hid the body underneath the floorboards in the living room, but the next evening buried Ruth in the back garden. In late 1943, Christie resigned from his policing role. The following year, he started work at a radio factory, where he met 32-year-old Muriel Eady. It didn't take long before the two were seen eating together on their breaks. When Muriel came down with a bad case of bronchitis that she couldn't shake, Christie invited her to the apartment, claiming to have a home remedy. <coughs> so, on October 7th, 1943, Muriel went over to Rillington Place. Once there... John Christie sat her down and began preparing what he called a special mixture. It consisted of a respiratory solution called Friar's Balsam, which Muriel was asked to inhale through a tube inserted in the top of a jar. As she breathed in the vapors, Christie secretly inserted another tube into the jar. This one was connected to the household gas supply. At the time, the gas had an incredibly high carbon monoxide content, because of the friar's balsam, Muriel couldn't smell the gas and was soon unconscious. Christie sexually assaulted and then strangled his incapacitated victim before burying her body in the backyard next to Ruth. companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. 
Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Nineteen forty-eight was an exciting time for newlyweds Timothy Evans and his wife Beryl. The couple was expecting their first child and had moved into the top-floor unit at Ten Rillington Place. In October of the same year, Beryl welcomed a baby girl named Geraldine. The following year, nineteen-year-old Beryl found herself pregnant again, but this was not the news the couple wanted. They had their hands full with thirteen-month-old Geraldine and another mouth to feed would put the working-class family under incredible financial stress. After a difficult conversation, the couple agreed to terminate the pregnancy. Fifty-year-old John Christie, who by now was working as a bank clerk, told the desperate couple he had medical training and could perform such procedures. Beryl met Christie on November 8th for the operation, but when Timothy returned home from work, he received some horrifying news. Christie told him that Beryl had died, due to complications during the procedure. He reminded the distraught man that abortion was illegal in England and that he would be implicated in his wife's death as well. Christie suggested that Timothy go visit family out of town until things calmed down. He reassured the grieving husband that baby Geraldine would be cared for by friends of theirs. Heeding the advice, Timothy left, but a few weeks later, his conscience got the better of him and he reported Beryl's death to police. Shortly after, officers arrived and searched 10 Rillington Place. But strangely, there was no sign of Beryl's remains, or their child. Timothy Evans insisted that John Christie was the last person to see his wife, but police were starting to think they had already found their suspect. They believed the 25-year-old was solely responsible for killing his wife and baby daughter. After intense questioning, police claimed Evans broke down and confessed. According to the statement, he concealed his wife's body inside the drain just in front of the apartment building. Not surprisingly, searches of the area failed to turn up anything. But none of the officers checked the small outhouse at the rear of the building. They also didn't bother to dig up sections of the backyard. If they had, they would have found what they were looking for. Almost a month after Beryl disappeared, officers found her body, along with that of her young daughter. They were found underneath a pile of wood, wrapped in a tablecloth. The bundle was then wrapped in a blanket and stashed in the outhouse in the backyard. The medical examination revealed that both mother and daughter had been strangled. It also showed that Beryl had been beaten before she was murdered. Timothy Evans was charged but he pointed the finger squarely at John Christie. However, the allegations went uninvestigated, and as far as police were concerned, the case was closed. A month later, in January 1950, Timothy Evans was found guilty of murdering his daughter, in large part thanks to Christie's testimony. Unfortunately for Evans, his former neighbor happened to be the prosecution's star witness, Christie denied any involvement or even talk of performing an abortion. He told the court that the couple often argued. Still, Evans insisted that he was innocent and appealed the conviction. His request was denied, and on March 9, 1950, two months after the trial, he was hanged. 
John Christie did not entirely escape suspicion, though. He lost his job when details of his criminal past were made public during the trial. With the Evans family now gone, the Christies had new neighbors, and they were not happy about it. Immigrant families from the West Indies were settling in poor areas of London, and Rillington Place was no exception. The Christies were vehemently opposed to having black people in their neighborhood, much less their building, and were quite vocal about their racism. In early December 1952, Christie resigned from his job and was now unemployed. For whatever reason, on the morning of December 14th, he strangled Ethel to death with a stocking. He left the body of his 54-year-old wife in their bed for three days, before wrapping her in a blanket and hiding it under the floorboards of the front room. Christie wrote her family and advised that Ethel's arthritis was so bad that she was unable to write and that she would not be visiting for Christmas. And he told neighbors that she had gone on another trip to visit her family. In desperate need of money, he sold Ethel's wedding ring and watch. He also sold off most of their furniture, keeping only a mattress, a couple of chairs, and the kitchen table. He forged her signature to drain her bank account and started selling her clothes. Nobody asked any questions, and John Christie mainly kept to himself. Less than a month after Ethel was murdered, Christie met 25-year-old single mother Rita Nelson at a local cafe. Rita was in from Belfast, visiting her sister in London. She was a sex worker and also six months pregnant. It's believed Christie took her back to 10 Rillington Place with promises of performing a free abortion, like he had done before. Rita Nelson was last seen on January 19, 1953. Twenty-six-year-old mother of five, Kathleen Maloney, had a chaotic childhood. As an adult, she was known to police for drunken disorderly conduct and often slept in rough places. She had moved to London from Plymouth and worked in the sex industry to earn extra money. No one really noticed when she disappeared in February 1953 after meeting Christie in a local pub. Around the same time, a 27-year-old mother of two and her boyfriend were in search of accommodation around Notting Hill. Christie met the couple in a cafe and suggested they use 10 Rillington Place as a base until they found something permanent. On March 6th, while her boyfriend was out looking for work, the woman decided to accompany Christie back to his apartment. When her panicked boyfriend knocked on his door later that day to see if Christie knew where she was, he offered to help find her. They never did. The disappearance was mysterious. With each of his last three known victims, Christie gassed them while they sat in his kitchen. As the women lay unconscious, he repeatedly assaulted them before strangling each one to death. Two of the women were wrapped up before being placed in the kitchen alcove, while the third was left partially dressed. Making sure there was no evidence left, Christie glued wallpaper over the alcove. In early March 1953, he slipped out the front door of 10 Rillington Place, suitcase in hand, without a word to anyone. 
It was later that month when Beresford Brown made the grisly discovery. Police launched a manhunt for the 53-year-old serial killer, who, unbeknownst to investigators, had initially moved less than 20 miles away to King's Cross. But after a week of trying to track the fugitive down, Christie was taken into custody back in London. In the meantime, detectives were busy conducting a full excavation of the backyard at 10 Rillington Place. They would quickly find the bones of his first two victims. When police removed the floorboards throughout Christie's former apartment, they found the remains of his wife. As if the whole scene wasn't horrible enough, they also found a gold tobacco tin containing pubic hair belonging to no less than four different people. Investigators found that a fence in the backyard was being propped up by a human femur. The bone, it turned out, belonged to Ruth. John Christie was charged, and in the following months admitted to killing the seven women. He did, however, stop short of taking responsibility for the murder of baby Geraldine. He also claimed Ethel was actually a mercy killing after she had experienced a seizure. British law at the time stipulated that no accused person could be tried with multiple murders at once. So the prosecution started with the charge they believed would most likely result in a conviction, the murder of his wife, Ethel. On June 22, 1953, Christie went before the court and pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. He then tried to convince the jury that he simply could not remember any details of the murders. The jury found him guilty just the same. Christie never appealed the conviction. The following month, he received a letter from the mother of Timothy Evans, pleading with him to clear their son's name and confess everything. She never received a response, and on July 15, 1953, John Christie was executed. The trial had put a spotlight back on the conviction and execution of Timothy Evans. It's now widely accepted that the written statements given by Evans were likely fabricated by police in an effort to close the case. Timothy Evans was uneducated, semi-literate, inarticulate, and the language used in the confession was in no way consistent with his own. In hindsight, what made the situation even more shocking is that Christie's testimony was the key to the prosecution's case. The odds were slim that two killers lived in the same residence at the same time and that both used strangulation to kill their victims. Yet, investigators were satisfied this was entirely plausible and that they had gotten it right. It was this catastrophic failure by police that left Christie free to become one of the most notorious serial killers in British history. The incompetence exhibited by police led to not one, but two investigations led by the British Parliament. In 1966, Timothy Evans posthumously received a pardon. The monumental miscarriage of justice also helped lead to the end of the death penalty in England. Thirty-five years later, the surviving family of Timothy Evans was awarded compensation. As with many serial killers, the question remains whether John Christie could have more victims we just don't know about. It's clear he felt comfortable murdering women and taking the time to conceal their bodies. So, it's entirely possible. 
Then there's the question of whether he would have stopped killing if he had not been apprehended. That we'll never really know. If you find yourself curious and looking for the infamous street, it's probably good to know that Rillington Place no longer exists. Redevelopment of the area in the 1970s saw the renaming of most of the streets. No doubt one step closer to distancing this corner of Notting Hill from its dark past. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen. of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. 
As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode.